in to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. Glad that you're joining me as we are going to continue today our study in the book of Revelation. So if you'll turn in your Bible there, if you have a hard copy, you'll open the text on your phone. We are in chapter number 11. This is a rich study and there's so much in this book. It's it's a very intriguing and interesting, fascinating study. And it's really the climax of the whole Bible. So as I said so many times already, you'll never understand Revelation if you do not understand and have a good uh, basis in the first 65 books. And that only makes sense. Well, in chapter 11, we finished last week in verse 14 uh, with the very uh, amazing uh, account of these two special witnesses that are mentioned first in verse 3 of chapter 11. And their story ends Uh, really in uh, verse 13. I believe these two witnesses, as we told you already, are are probably Moses and Elijah. And after their ministry of three and a half years is concluded, uh, the Antichrist, who's then in power over the world, uh, has them killed, kills them himself, however you want to call that. And their bodies are allowed to remain dead on the streets in Jerusalem, for three and a half days as an act of disdain and disgust over their ministry and over their persons. And yet after three and a half days, God's Spirit brings them to life. They stand on their feet and they ascend up into heaven uh, where all their enemies, all the wicked, all those who hate God and his people, hate these two men, have hated their preaching. Uh, All the world is going to stand in total shock and awe over what has happened. And as a result, uh, God brings an earthquake in verse 13, and a tenth of the city, and that's the city of Jerusalem, made up, uh, really founded on three hills, a tenth of the city is going to uh, fall. Uh, We don't know exactly where and exactly how that'll look, but uh, it says, And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. And now the second woe is passed. Now, this second woe leads us to the end of the chapter, and we're now going to pick up the final uh, trumpet. Remember, there were seven trumpets in the second series of judgments that we began cha- uh, back in chapter 8. Uh, we had the f- seven seal judgments in chapter 6 uh, and, and chapter 8. The seventh seal was really not a judgment, but an opening up to these seven new judgments, the seven trumpets. And uh, then we get to chapter 16. Uh, in a few episodes, we'll see the final seven judgments called the seven vile or bold judgments. Uh, and so now as we read the text in chapter 11, I'll begin in verse 15 and we'll read down through verse 19. We'll see this seventh trumpet being mentioned. And the seventh angel sounded and there were there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdom's of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord, God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged." And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testimony. 
and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Well, as we come to this seventh trumpet, uh, we are reminded how hard it is to put in chronological order all the various events in the book of Revelation, and for that matter, the entire scope of what we call eschatology, or the study of end times events. Uh, No one can say they can guarantee and perfectly understand where all these events fit and how they fit in and how and when they'll happen in what order and so on. And I'm not going to claim to either. I will just say that it appears to me, and I've read this from many other scholars much smarter than I am who've studied this subject much longer than I have, that uh, this seventh trumpet is a climactic event. And I think it really is, is, is possibly describing the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, I know there's still seven more uh, vile judgments coming. You say, well, how does that make sense? Well, I'm not going to try to make sense of it. I'm going to try to say that basically by the way this is, this is uh, written and what we read here in this contents, it seems like a finale. Uh, you know when you uh, go to see fireworks uh, each 4th of July here in, in the U.S., we celebrate our independence on the 4th of July every year, and most all of us who have went to a fireworks show know that at the very end, you'll know when it's over, because a great finale, which will be just a, a plethora, an explosion of many, many fireworks all at once. Um, and that'll tell you that the, the firework display is over. Well, this is kind of written like that. The seventh trumpet seems to be a finality of sorts uh, because the, the description of what happens and, and, and how it's reacted to seem to be the end of something. And I think it is. I think it's the end of the tribulation. Now, trying to fit in how that uh, goes along with the Battle of Armageddon, which we think happens at the end, and other events, uh, that's not really possible. We can only say that uh, all of this stuff's going to come together. We do know, and we've already established, that there is a seven-year tribulation period. Uh, Just earlier, I had the privilege of teaching out at our seminary that I teach at and teaching a group uh, about the 70th week prophecy of Daniel in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which is just an amazing, magnificent prophecy uh, in the Old Testament, probably one of the greatest in all the Bible that predicts exactly when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come the first time. But also, uh, it's fascinating that it ends in verse 27 of Daniel 9 by telling us about this final seven-year period, the one week of the 70th week that was left yet to be fulfilled. And so we know that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. Uh, Fitting everything into it, uh, that's not always the easiest thing to do, but we know it all happens. And we're going to leave the actual time frame and how they fit and mesh and and, uh, coagulate together, you might say, how how they come together. We'll leave that to God. Well, back to the text. Let's talk about this. So here's the seventh angel. Just like the previous six trumpets, the seventh angel sounds. And notice what he says immediately. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, that statement alone tells you that this is not just another uh, unleashing of wrath and judgment on the earth like the previous trumpets were, uh, whether that was physical or spiritual, demonic. This is a, a, a statement. It's actually taken right from Isaiah twenty-seven thirteen from the Old Testament, 
And it's speaking of the reign of Messiah, of God's anointed. And the only way this statement makes any sense is to have Jesus coming uh, at this point. That's why I'm thinking this seventh trumpet is picturing and speaking of the end of the tribulation period, because then Christ comes, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, he will set up his kingdom from Jerusalem in a new temple that will be built for him. We can't say exactly when and how long it'll take, but we have dimensions and I think a great description of the millennial temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48 in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, back to this, I think this statement means that we've come to the end of the tribulation and how Jesus is about to reign and he shall reign forever and ever. And notice the reaction when this happens. Remember those beasts uh, and the 24 elders that we uh, found uh, earlier? Actually, in this reference, it's just going to be to the 24 elders. The beasts of these four creatures are often mentioned too. But here, the 24 elders, it says, uh, which sat before God, uh, on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshiped God. Well, again, they're, they're worshiping him for praise and thanksgiving and joy and adoration that the Christ has finally come to reign on earth. And all the woes and judgments of the tribulation, that horrible time, uh, is over. And notice what they say, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, uh, uh, which art and wast and art to come. By the way, uh, notice this statement given to God uh, and it has to be Christ. So Christ is God. See the deity of Christ brought out here? It's uh, his Christ shall reign forever. And now they're saying Almighty God is come to reign uh, forever um, and has reigned. And so they're praising God for the fact that Christ will reign. He's going to set up his kingdom. It's going to be a beautiful kingdom. We'll refer some more to it when we get to chapter 20, where specifically the thousand-year reign is dealt with more in Revelation. And then it says, and the nations were angry. Well, of course, bringing this all together means as you come to the end, this is the response that the unsaved, wicked world will have when Christ returns. Uh, and we'll save our comments about the Battle of Armageddon to until chapter 16 when it's brought up specifically. But generally speaking, this sums up how the world's going to think. When Christ returns, they're going to be angry uh, that they should be judged. They're not going to like that. And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets. Oh, they'll hate that too. They hate that they're going to be on the judgment end of things. And the saved, the righteous that have been saved and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, been born again, we are going to be rewarded. They're going to be punished. And it says, And them that fear thy name, small and great, that shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Uh, man, that's a great promise for you and I that are saved. He says, uh, not only will we be blessed with reward for our service for Christ, but we'll get to also see finally the judgment on the wicked who have hated us and uh, persecuted us and, uh, and, and created such uh, trouble and sorrow and trial for our lives on earth. God's remembered all that. He's kept all the record of it. Uh, and then it ends with uh, rather mysterious, definitely, uh, vision here of the temple of God in heaven. We've seen this temple a number of times, so we're not, you know, uh, surprised to see the temple. But the fact that it's opened here, like a door opens, it says it's opened in heaven. And you can see, and there was seen in his temple, the ark of the testimony, or the testament, I should say. The testament, of course, is a picture of the ark of the Old Testament where God's word was put in, the Ten Commandments, and that little gold, gold-covered box that 
was located in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, later in the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's where God literally dwelled. It's really picturing God's presence. And then this phrase, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Well, that would apparently be what's happening down on earth again as this judgment uh, that was referred to in verse 18 is being carried out. So you kind of got to connect the dots to see now you got a heavenly vision, but down on earth, what's going to happen? Well, you've got wrath and uh, God's uh, curse upon the earth with all these terrifying uh, exhibits of lightning, voices, thunders, earthquake, great hail. Same, same things we've been seeing before. We saw this initially uh, at the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So this is always a picture of God's presence and His holiness, His judgment on sin and the world of unbelievers. And so we finish chapter 11 with a look at the seventh trumpet. Well, let's move right into chapter 12. You remember there was no divisions in the original writings of these books. They were put in for our help to find things quicker, and we're glad for them, but the text just goes right on. And so let me begin in chapter 12. Now, chapter 12, and we are grateful for the divisions most of the time. Uh, they're beautifully put in. Sometimes they seem a little awkward, but you know we leave that to God and His providence. He's kept these chapters and verses in now for uh, somewhat of 500 or more years now, we know. So God must uh, approve of them. But nonetheless, what we do see here is this uh, wonder in heaven. Now we're going to go, remember, we go from the earth uh, to events that seem more physical and, 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 and actual on earth to heavenly scenes and visions and so forth of heaven and spiritual beings that are invisible to us right now. But that's kind of what chapter 12 is going to do. Now we're going to go into heaven and we're going to see uh, reference to some events that happened a long time ago. Uh, but are going to be brought to the present because they affect all of world history. And that is the event of when the, the angel Lucifer, that's what he was first called, the angel Lucifer, he's referred to that uh, by that name in Isaiah 14. I believe it's verse 12, but you can look that up. Anyway, um, we know from other verses like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, several others, that the devil, who was at first a, a beautiful and a holy angel called Lucifer, rebelled, uh, wanted to be like God, wanted to dethrone God and, and institute himself into the place of, as God and rule over the universe. Uh, he is, of course, dethroned. It was a foolish in, attempt, and he is removed from heaven. We're going to see that pictured here, and among other things that we'll, we'll talk about. So let's begin in the text here. And um, I'll read verses 1 through 3 to start. And there appeared a great wonder or sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now, let's stop right there. So, we begin the chapter with a vision or a sign uh, in heaven, uh, and this uh, kind of correlates, of course, to the uh, bodies in the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars, because he's going to use that kind of language. The sun and moon and stars are all mentioned, and you're going to immediately, I hope, re remind yourself of a passage way back in the first book of the Bible. Isn't the Bible amazing? It has 66 books, 1189 chapters, 
but it just fits like a hand in a glove beautifully. Here we are nearly at the end of the Bible. We're reminded of the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph, uh, the favorite son of Jacob, and his tremendous story at the end of the book of Genesis. And he was a he was a dreamer, at least that's what his ten older brothers thought of him. They hated him and sold him eventually into slavery. But anyway, I remember when he was still at home with his family, he'd have these dreams and he'd come and tell his his mom and dad and his brothers about these dreams. And they hated him even more when he told them about the dreams because it made him exalted and them feel less and felt they felt like he was being arrogant and bragging and whatever. Well, one of his dreams was exactly this, uh, that the sun and moon, which would have pictured his, his uh, mother and father, and now the 12 stars, which, which picture the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, were all part of that. Now, in his particular dream, he sees where the 11 brothers bow down to him, and that would be a fulfilled, uh, would be fulfilled in the events down in Egypt later, as you remember when his family has to come down and literally prostrate themselves before Joseph, who's the second in command in, in uh, Egypt in the end of the book of Genesis. So anyway, all of that uh, really makes us think about this, this event. But there's more to it than that. This is not actually the same dream, but it makes us think about that because the picture there is really of a woman who's going to give birth to a child, okay? Now, let's start to identify who we think these are. Since that dream of Joseph does picture Israel, Jacob, uh, his wife, and the 12 tribes, uh, the woman here would be Israel as well. I think the picture is, is, is of Israel. The 12 stars would correlate to the 12 tribes. Now, who is the child? It says, is she being with child? That means she's about ready to give birth. She's travailing. That means she has, has birth pangs. She's in labor, uh, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. Well, that's picturing bringing the Messiah. Jesus Christ was a Jew. He was born uh, from the tribe of Judah. Uh, he came uh, from his uh, the kingly line of David, the, the great king. His foster father, Joseph, though was not his biological father, but did raise him and had parental authority in his life and so forth. He was a great man. His mother, of course, Mary, uh, was also Jewish from the tribe of of Judah as well. So we see this phrase, him being birthed or be delivered. Well, it was it was a lot of pain because imagine all the suffering that took place in the Old Testament times leading up to the birth of Christ because this same devil who's going to be mentioned in verse 3 constantly was trying to destroy the Messiah before he would ever come, his line, his lineage. Uh, he tried to wipe out the Jews several times. We know in the Old Testament the story of of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, way early, where he tries to wipe out the Jewish line by killing all the baby boys, drowning them in the Nile. We find out later that uh, this wicked man, Haman, in the book of Esther, tries to wipe out the Jews in a genocide. Um, at one point in the books of the kings, uh, a wicked woman named Athalia uh, kills all of her, her grandsons, uh, who were going to be the heirs to the throne, or one of them would, and kills all but one little boy by the name of uh, Joash. Uh, anyway, these are all pictures of the pain that Israel would go forward, uh, go forth in and deal with uh, before it would bring forth the Messiah. It wasn't an easy thing. Messiah came to a oppressed and persecuted people. When Jesus was born some 2,000 years ago in, in, in Israel, specifically in Bethlehem of Judea, 
We know that Israel was under the oppression of the Romans. Uh, the iron fist of Rome was upon them. It was a horrible time. And so it was definitely uh, fitting to call this a, a painful delivery. Now, going forward, it says, And there appeared another wonder. So you got first the woman Israel bringing birth, giving birth, if you will, bringing forth into the world the Messiah. Jesus was a Jew born of the line of David. Uh, by the way, let me add, interject this. Any form of anti-Semitism or anti-Israel sentiment is not Christian. Just mark that down. Anyone who claims to be a Christian, anyone claims to teach for God, claims to believe the Bible, but is in any way anti-Semitic is a liar. You need to completely remove yourself from any kind of association with that person. We love the Jewish people. Yes, most Jewish people are in unbelief, have not come to believe in Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah, but we love Israel. Jesus was a Jew. He was born a Jew. He lived in Israel all his life. He died for the Jews and for Gentiles, of course. And the Bible teaches in the famous words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we had to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We had to love the Jews. Uh, they're a special chosen people. Well, now let me go on. So now the devil, this, this other wonder is about this great red dragon. It doesn't call him Satan, but we know that's who it is. It's a picture. It doesn't mean that he has a real body as a dragon, we don't think. He's a, an invisible being. Now, uh, he must take on some kind of physical traits to describe him this way. But literally, you know, some of these things with a dragon and a pitchfork in his hand, you know, I think are overdone. Um, he's, a, he's an angelic invisible being. But for sake of describing him, and, and it's possible, as we know, demons possess people. It's possible he can possess uh, uh, physical form if he takes it in a body. Some, some people argue that maybe he is literally embodying the Antichrist while the Antichrist is ruling over the world. That's very possible. I'm not going to argue one way or the other. But notice it says he's called the great red dragon. Red is a picture of blood. It's a picture of death in many ways. And so he brings a lot of bloodshed and death. He always has. He's been the great arch enemy of God and of God's people. Well, it says he has seven heads and ten horns. And we've seen this phrase before in this uh, uh, idea, uh, the seven crowns upon his heads. Uh, the heads and horns speak of authority, uh, speak of governmental authority. Uh, and so the seven heads and ten horns very well could be seven leaders that rule with him, uh, could be uh, demonic creatures like uh, Abaddon and Apollyon. We don't know who those seven are necessarily. Um, and the crowns on their head simply means they have authority from him. And during the tribulation period, with the Antichrist and his rule over the earth, he's going to have a number of these figures that are pictured by symbolic language. Of course, there, he didn't really have seven heads and he didn't really have ten horns coming out of a dragon-like body. It's just a symbolic statement. We do believe there's symbol in the Bible. Symbolism is important. It's not all to be taken symbolically. The whole Bible can't be taken symbolically, but there are symbolic passages. And that's what we believe we have here. Now, let's move on. So it's going to tell you what he does. We just have introduced the woman and her child and the beast, uh, or the uh, dragon, I should say, the devil. Let's move on and see what happens. Verses 4 through 6. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, so much in these verses, past uh, and present and future, really, past uh, and, and future for sure, because look at this phrase beginning in verse 4, and amazingly enough, we think this phrase is really referring to that original revolt that I told you about, that attempt of Lucifer to overthrow God and rule in heaven as God. And it says, in his tail... Uh, drew the third part of the stars of heaven. That that simply means. Remember back earlier we saw that the scorpion and the uh, and the uh, uh, my my mind's forgetting the other creature. But anyway, their their sting was in their tail. That's just a thing about authority, of pain, uh, an instrument of delivering pain. The the tail would simply mean picturing his power. His tail drew a third part. Now. It appears that out of the three archangels, did I mention the three? I don't know if I did. I'm sorry. But there are actually three angels that were given, uh, I think, a third of a, a power among each of the three. A third of power went to Lucifer. He, he apparently had uh, the authority and the responsibility to lead in, heaven, in heavenly worship, in music. You can get that from Ezekiel 28. I won't get into that deeply. Read that. Um, Michael apparently was the warrior angel. He's going to be mentioned here in verse 7 uh, as he battles with Lucifer. And then Gabriel, of course, we're familiar with Gabriel, the messenger angel. So uh, it, at this revolt, which is pictured, I think, in verse 4, uh, Lucifer, he draws a third of what we would call the angels that would become later known as demons uh, to try to revolt with him. Uh, and it says, and did cast them to the earth. Well, he didn't literally cast them. Uh, God cast them out through the battle that will be described in verse 7. It's just the language is kind of put together, the, the whole revolt and its conclusion is referred to. So a third part of the demons uh, follow the devil. They're cast out of heaven. And that's where, of course, at, at whatever time, and that's another big if and question mark, exactly when that happened, we're not sure. We do know some of the demons were chained in the bottomless pit. We've talked a little bit about that back in chapter 9, verse 11, with the bottomless pit and the king over them, Abaddon or Apollyon. So anyway, we're connecting a lot of dots here. Hope you're able to follow. I don't want to make it too uh, confusing here. But anyway, uh, so he's cast out. Now, look, look what he does once he's cast out, the dragon, which again is Satan. He stood before the woman. That's, that's Israel. That's in the picture here of Israel, which was ready to be delivered. And that really goes back to what I've already said, so I won't repeat it. But the devil is trying to destroy the child before he's ever born, before he ever comes, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. He tried before he was born, and then once he is born, well, we know the exact story. It's the horrifying story of Herod, the wicked maniac known, named Herod the Great, when Jesus was born, we see this in Matthew chapter 2, that Herod in his insane jealousy seeks to kill the little boy, he seeks to kill Christ, and he sends his troops to kill all children to and under in and around Bethlehem. And that's really the picture here. Uh, he was led by the devil, no doubt, and of course he didn't accomplish what he set out to do, but that's what he tried to do. 
And now it goes into the fact that she was successful, Israel. It's not Mary necessarily. I mean, some interpret the she in verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child. Uh, of course, we could say Mary did. She was the mother of Jesus in the, in the flesh. She's not the mother of God. That phrase is inaccurate. She's the mother of Jesus. He calls her woman, and, and in the flesh, she did raise him. I think, again, I may have mentioned this before, but I think Mary... Uh, the mother of Jesus is either given too much credit and worshipped inaccurately and in and, 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 and error, or she's given no credit at all or simply forgotten or neglected. I think both are, are wrong. She was a very important uh, person that God used in a great way, a holy, uh, wonderful woman that agreed to and submitted to uh, giving birth to the to the Christ, to the Messiah. Uh, but I don't think the she there's necessarily her. I think it's back to verse 1 and the woman, which is Israel, um, who was to rule all nations. Now, we know this description is Christ, and that's how you got to know your Bible. It doesn't always tell you everything outright. you got to study. God purposely made his His word um, sometimes mysterious, some somewhat hidden, uh, someone under the surface. You've got to dig. You've got to read. You've got to study. God wants you to find these nuggets and and, deli- and discover these truths and, and rejoice in them. So not everything is just going to be laid perfectly out and every word described. Well, this this uh, child that's born, who was to rule all nations, is Christ. That's how he'll rule on earth for a thousand years. And now notice this description of him, and her child was caught up unto God and into his throne. Well, that's the ascension. So in one verse, we've got his birth, uh, his second coming, and his ascension all kind of put together here. Like I told you, that's why so many of these prophetic verses, like in a book like Revelation, are difficult. Because in one verse, we have really three things going on. We've got the first coming. We've got the second coming where he rules already. And we've got his ascension at the end of the verse. Well, then verse 6, he's talking about throwing a curveball to us. Verse 6 will then go back to earth and leave the conversation about the man-child, the Christ, and what he does to this woman who, again, we believe has to be Israel. And what it, look what it says here. Verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared of God. Now, um, this is a tough verse to understand, I know, but... The ending of the verse and the timing given makes it, I think, a little easier to understand. It says that this woman flees to a place where God has prepared and keeps her safe, protects her, provides for her uh, for 1,260 days. Three scores 60, scores 20. Um, And that's a key statement because we've already been telling you that three and a half years uh, of time is referred to uh, several times in this book of Revelation. So we have the seven-year tribulation divided into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. So anytime you see reference to either 1,260 days, uh, 42 months, or the phrase a time, times, and a half a time, like we saw uh, in an earlier reference already, that's speaking of three-and-a-half years. Well, that's going to put you into the tribulation period. So now we've went from Christ's first coming his rule during the millennium, his ascension after he rose from the dead, now back to the tribulation period. (laughs) So you see why the book of Revelation can be confusing. You've got to just take it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, step by step, and just kind of weed through it here. Uh, So here, here it says the woman fled. Now, most scholars, prophecy scholars, believe that 
this event of Israel fleeing in the wilderness is uh, none other but the event that Jesus himself spoke of that would follow the abomination of desolation. Uh, uh, I can't I can't remember whether I dealt with this event already. I apologize, but I do a lot of teaching either at church or here in podcast or at the seminary, so I can't remember who I talked to what. But anyway, I just quickly review it. Back in Matthew 24, Jesus spoke of a of an event that was first brought up by Daniel the prophet. He even mentions that. But in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now, that uh, reference in Matthew 24 is exactly this same event, we think. And basically, in a nutshell, and in case I haven't covered it yet, just to tell you that the Antichrist will go into the temple that sits in Jerusalem during the tribulation. He'll let the Jews build it. He will desecrate it, and he will set up his image. We'll get to that image in the next chapter. And that will cause the Jews. That'll be like a total red flag. I mean, that is just a warning above all warnings that you better get out of there because this man is bent on killing you and all Christians and all that's righteous. He is against God. He hates God. And they're going to use that as a signal. He says, when you see that, you better flee to the mountains. And that's exactly what I think verse 6 is speaking of. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, here's what's an amazing thing. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about what I'm about to say, and I'm going to end with this for our study today. But there is a place in modern-day Jordan that is not that many miles uh, uh, outside of the modern state of Israel in modern-day Jordan, down near the Dead Sea, called Petra. Some of you have probably heard of it. You can look it up. You can Google it. Put it on Google Earth, and you can see it. And there's a lot of information about it. It's a, it's a the best way to describe it, it's a mountainous, uh, uh, secure, hidden location in the mountains down there near the Dead Sea that creates a beautiful, safe haven. It's a big, actual, it used to be a city. There's a group called the Nabataeans that dwelt there way back. This is, uh, if, I'm, if I'm correct on my remembers, remembering this, it was before Christ, but maybe even after uh, Christ coming. But anyway, the Nabataeans lived there. They were driven out of there. And that area now is a tourist spot. You can, when you go to Israel today with a, on a tour, you can go and, and uh, uh, tour the, the ancient city of Petra, which is in this mountain region. And what it is, is it's a very unique place. It only has one entrance into it on by ground as you walk into there. And some of those entrances, and I've never seen it in person, so I'm not going to tell you, I, I had a chance when we went to Israel to go to Petra, and I couldn't stay long enough to go to the extension to Petra, but I've seen it, I've read, read books and looked at pictures of it. Um, there's places where it's very narrow to even get into the big city, but once you get in through this entrance that's walled on each side by very high walls, it's a beautiful, secure area where there are many, uh, I don't know how many, I won't even try to put a number on it, but a lot. It can, it can house literally, uh, I've read at least thousands and thousands of people if necessary, maybe even more, maybe even to the millions. I, I'm not going to say that for sure, but I do know this. Uh, it is a unique place unlike any other. And most prophecy scholars, the great Dave Hunt, who uh, I have such love for his writings of the past, he was one of the great prophecy teachers of our generation, 
Uh, he died a few years ago, but he's one of my heroes, not only in prophecy, but he spoke so uh, brilliantly and wrote so brilliantly on a lot of subjects. Uh, Dave Hunt was among those who believed that this uh, place where the woman flees in verse 6 was Petra. And because she could go there and be protected and 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 uh, secured there by God and uh, taken care of there, it says that they should feed her there. Who's the they? If God prepares the place, well, they will feed her. We don't know who the they is, but I do know that I think the people that go there are going to be converted Jewish people. Remember, we talked about the multitudes that are saved in chapter seven, the hundred forty-four thousand, but then many, many others. We'll refer to them in chapter 14. I think they're going to flee. The, the remnant of saved Jewish people that all come to Jesus Christ during the tribulation period under the preaching of the two witnesses and then under the preaching of the 144,000, I think they're going to be this people that when they see that abomination of desolation and they know the Antichrist is turning on them and he hates them and wants to eat them up and destroy them. Basically, the text kind of indicates that idea, the devil after them. And they have to flee. That's a serious word. They're in danger. They flee, and God's going to take care of them. I don't know exactly how he's going to do that, but we know today there's many forms of technology, uh, whether it's aircraft are going to drop supplies and whatever they need into that area. But it's going to be very hard for them to be uh, captured or killed there because it's very easy to defend. Uh, there's only one small entrance. Uh, well, it's not always small, but most of the entrance is very narrow. Uh, yes, if there is planes still in operation, then they could uh, try to in some way drop uh, bombs or weaponry into there. But we're going to say, hey, God says he's going to keep them safe. For how long? For 1,260 days or the rest of the tribulation period. So I happen to believe that this is probably the last uh, three and a half years. It fits perfectly into that time frame and the Lord will protect them. Well, it's an amazing event, so we're going to end there. Next time, we'll pick up on verse 7 and uh, our study of the book of Revelation. God bless you. Remember our motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people.